podcast, the only book club podcast that maintains a volunteer army of social media promoters. You can find them wandering Twitter and the Instagram, you know, out there on the digital streets, putting up flyers, trying to placate the people who are upset about the books we've chosen. Amanda, we've got an <laughs> army of followers out there. Do we? <laughs> yeah, we, we often give them dollar bills just to kind of, you know, grease the palms, make them happy, keep them pleased. Right. Right. We, we've got a bit because of a political of... promotion going on. Yeah, educators are notorious for having just dollar bills hanging around. That's right, that's right. Duffel bags <laughs> of cash, and we can do with that cash what we want to. If you're unsure why we're talking about volunteer armies and dollar bills and duffel bags of cash, that is because today we're recording a book club episode for the novel Native Speaker by the author Chang Ray Lee. And these have been light allusions to that work. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. That is Amanda, my co-host. Hey, Amanda. Hello. I'm Travis. As always, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We've got accounts under at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. Follow us there. See what we've got going on on social media. We put up some art and promotions and stuff to remind you of the books we're doing. Also, rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Please and thank you. We're up just about everywhere. Wherever you found this is probably where you can rate and review. Tell your friends and family, etc. Now, Again, this is a book club episode, which is going to be an analytical deep dive into a work of literature that we have chosen. It is a novel, again, called Native Speaker by Chang Ray Lee, which Amanda chose. I'm starting to forget the prompt for this one. I don't know what you, I told you. <laughs> yeah, you asked me um, to choose um, a work about an uh, immigrant experience. Yes, there we go. Fantastic. Okay. And this is a curious one. Not Well, not curious one. It's an interesting one because the the narrator is not an immigrant, though his father and family, uh, father is family is as well. So I definitely think it qualifies. It strongly qualifies, I would even say, because of the kind of plot of the story, too. But could you walk us through why you chose this then? Why did you go with this one? Yeah, I've, I've had this book on my shelf for a while. I just never got around mm-hmm. to reading it. It's a part of my uh, Korean-American collection. <clears throat> okay, and, yeah. um I had seen that it was like an award-winning book, and also um, Chang Ray Lee, he's pretty well-known, especially for an Asian-American writer, and um, I chose this one as, because the author himself is actually an immigrant. He's from, he was born in Korea, and and then started his writing career here in the United States, and even though the narrator is not necessarily i i couldn't tell he like the whether the the narrator was um technically an immigrant i mean he was raised from a child at least in in the united states anyway yeah but i chose it because it seemed really interesting and also like when i read the back i was like oh okay so it's not just about like the immigrant experience but it's got another element to it so yeah, it, the tone of it we'll get into, I'm sure, very swiftly once we begin breaking down the work, but it did take me by surprise, and it is not a narrative that is, I don't know, it, it's definitely an immigrant story, or at least a story about being kind of an other, quote-unquote, in America, someone who is yeah. not considered native, not considered perhaps part of the tapestry right away or something, but yeah, it also is a spy story, kind of, and it has the yeah. tone and some of the tropes of spy stories, and so it's kind of a unique blend in that way. So, okay. Yeah. 
Before we dive in, one last warning. This is book club part one for Native Speaker, so we'll be analyzing the first half of the work. This book divides almost cleanly in half. I read to page 159, which was almost exactly halfway. There are unfortunately no chapter titles or names that I saw. Did you have any? No, they're just yeah, marks. no numbers. Like it looks like a big H. Yeah, no numbers. So if you're trying to avoid spoilers, feel free to just divide the book directly in half. You should be safe. Whatever edition or copy you have, did you have another way to denote it before we jump in? Nope. Yeah, I think that's about as clean as it'll get. It, it does break in half almost exactly on a chapter split, so we read up to that chapter. Again, on ours, it's page 159, so let's dig in. We begin our book club part ones with fill-in-the-blank prompts. Amanda, you definitely have to start this one off since you made it. Uh, throw us in here. What, what's our fill-in-the-blank? Uh, the fill in the blank is the reason I would be recruited to be a corporate spy is blank. So I was thinking yeah. um, what qualities or skills or whatever would um, attract a recruiter because Henry was recruited, right? Yes. That would um, uh, attract a recruiter for a, an espionage mission. Um, so I said, for me, they would just be attracted by to my, my experience as a, a teacher Specifically because a lot of the spying, according to like the way that Henry spies, at least, yeah, is yeah. Um, being an observer, re- writing reports, and managing both like the masses. And in this case, Henry has to manage like um, the, the groups of people that he interacts with, as well as the masses who are attracted to Kwong. And yeah, yeah. Um, a manager of bosses where he has to... Um, deal with Hoagland and also even though he's his friend um, he's still kind of a superior and that's Jack right so yeah very much a teacher's job (laughs) there's a description somewhere in here that describes it as sort of you want to be noticeable but not noticed or there's some kind of you know paradoxical description in here somewhere like that it's again very spy talk where it's sort Mm -hmm. of there are these contradictories when you're pretending to be someone else you have to exist as someone else but also be yourself kind of and so Yeah. yeah you have to sort of blend in and be noted for certain things but not be too noticeable or too you know, outgoing or something. And yeah, he yeah. sort of, yeah. So you have to be a person who can be anonymous, but also noteworthy. You know, you want to be, you want to be impressive, but not, but not be impressing upon people. <laughs> I right. feel like I'm just going to keep rifling off contradictory descriptions. <laughs> anyway, just tell, just stop me now. Um, <laughs> the nature it, of the, the book. It is. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> true. I, I had a hard time with this one just because like you said, could I write reports? Sure. Can I observe? Yeah, I have a really difficult time lying. I'm kind of a classic rule follower. So the very notion of this kind of I, I, I'm certain I could not do this and kind of embed myself somewhere and play pretend but also be sincere about it at the same time. It's just a 0% chance for me of being able to do this. So I was trying to think of in my life what kinds of things would people want from me information wise. I do have a couple friends that are tied up in some businesses in the Midwest that are you know, relatively big, like childhood friends that, you know, I'm not going to describe things or name names, but I could see that's the only connection I could think of where I was like, well, what kind of connections do I have that somebody would want to exploit me for? And that was the only one I could think of. Even that, that was kind of ludicrously far-fetched, I think. The only other thing I want to comment on on this one, and this doesn't hit the prompt perfectly, but the one thing I sympathize with Henry with was that he went back to his college sort of to a recruitment event in general corporate recruiting, and this is how he got tied in. That that would have been the time to get me. If there were ever a time in my life when my mind was really open to possibility, so to speak, 
and just wanting to go out and delve into the world and do something, that would have been the moment. So I do, that part felt quite real to me, I suppose. So I don't think I would have been able, and you know, the pitch that his boss is at Hoagland, Hoagland? Hoagland, Hoagland. Yeah. The pitch that he gives him, you know, is compelling. We'll give you a stipend to come in for the interview. Oh, it's just, you know, you're going to be an analyst, which is such a vague, meaning, almost meaningless term that <laughs> just makes you yeah. sound important and smart. And so it's just, you know, you can be a, a kind of recruiting analyst or a consultant or whatever. So that part I really felt sympathy for. Yeah. Gotta love that, those. That is the perfect, because I also, after yeah. college, I was just like, what am I going to do? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, what a great four years, and then, oh, now you got to put it together. Got to figure it out. <laughs> Let's move to some surprises, pleasant or otherwise. This segment kind of explains itself, but we're going to talk through things now in the book that so far have taken us by surprise, for the better or the worse or the neutral. Um, I'll, I'll start this one off for us, Amanda. Yeah. The spy component, I'm quite still quite shocked by it. I think... <laughs> I don't know what I expected going in. I've read a couple of Chang Ray Lee's books before. One was a dystopian novel, and the other one, I think, was a... I don't know if it was an essay collection or something, but, yeah, he's he's kind of a writer of note. He's taught at a bunch of Ivy League schools. He's a creative writing person in the U.S., just kind of an acclaimed writer, person of letters, that kind of thing. So I knew his reputation a little bit. I just had no idea that this would be... I don't even think... Now, granted, I, I don't know if I read the slipcover or the Wikipedia before actually beginning this novel, but I 0% of me expected a spy story of any kind, even even this one, which is toned down. He's not James Bond, right? He's <laughs> he's just kind of an information-gathering sort of, I don't know, parasite of sorts who latches onto people and relationships and gets things from them and gives them to his boss for money. But I think the part that surprised me then... I would say mostly pleasantly, if not neutrally. The way he interacts with his coworkers and his boss, the kind of, the way everything they say has shades and there's politics happening in their banter at all times, and they have these kind of terse exchanges where they imply a lot of things, they hint at a lot of things, that's the part to me that feels very, it feels like when you watch spy movies or engage with spy fiction, there's always, you know, a thing being unsaid that's maybe more important than the thing being said. And so I don't, there's just a certain way they exchange banter, right? On page 35, he Hoagland's talking about we got lucky, there's a new office in Flushing's next week and they need volunteers. Everyone's talking and talking about the mayor, my opinion, Quang will get squashed. And then they're, so they're talking about that. How did you hook me? Temp agency, totally legit. Jack said, this is cake, Parky. No problemo, Hoagland pitched in. Anyway, she handles the PR and media. Her name is Sherry Chin Watt. And it's just, there's there's little parts to that. The the way he has a kind of pejorative nickname for him, the way that they they throw in, and this book is it, so crucial to note when you're reading it that it was written in the 90s because their spy craft requires things like faxing, you know, and, and using landline phones and stuff. And so it... It, just the banter in there too. He calls him amigo, which is just an odd use of Spanish, which I feel like in 2021 would read as kind of fun banter. But I don't know 30 years ago how that reads. Anyway, there everything that he, every time he converses with either his coworkers, even Jack to an extent, or Hoagland, it does feel very thriller understated to me. I, I, how did you feel about those moments? Yeah, it was great. Um... I, I enjoyed it because I, I think that the interpersonal relationships is like the heart of this novel, at least yeah. thus far. And um, because it's all about his identity, right? And his his kind of search for an identity where he's constantly living on 
on the the edges of of life in a lot of ways. So I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. like with Jack, I think that's a really interesting relationship too because Jack, like I said, is like his close friend at work as much as he can have friendships, but right, also right. he's older, right? He's getting, he's wanting to retire and he's also kind of like Hoagland's right-hand man in a lot of ways, even though he right. also rags on, on Hoagland in a lot of ways. Um, but he still is kind of like Jack, uh, not Jack, sorry, <laughs> Henry's superior. Yeah, so I found yeah. that really interesting. Like the, the, the shades of, it's not just a black and white relationship with anybody. There's so many shades of, of um, layers of uh, like power structure and stuff like that. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And there's, it's interesting because it's clear that they have an interpersonal connection. They, they know each other's wives. Um, Jax has just passed his sort of right. this intense, it sounds like really vibrant person in his life has died, which has left him kind of bereft and also maybe with a bit of, of a void. And he doesn't seem to, maybe he's not taking life as passionately. He has quotes in there about something like when you're with a woman, like my wife was, you have to really put in the passion or I, I forget the quotes, but yeah. So he's just kind of in this interim state. So it, it does seem personal, then, of course, recently, at least the part we read up to on, I think it was on 155, he is kind of shaking Henry down for information. He seems dissatisfied, and Hoagland's upset that he hasn't been giving good reports and hasn't been checking in. So, But then there's sort of combative exchanges where you wonder what's the work and what's the personal and stuff. And, yeah, it just – the way it can flip back and forth does feel – you know, I, I don't know, maybe the modern day equivalent would be something like James Bond, which there's always an oddness to that, too, because the more more recent Bond movies have tried to dive into Bond as a just person in the world, sort of a normal person managing, I don't know, relationships and things. But this is this is that. Ah, gosh, yeah, I wish I could articulate this better. But this does feel like that in a toned down, maybe more realistic sense where, yeah, there's not going to be explosions and Certainly, Henry's not up for a gunfight or something and doesn't even have training for that. But it, it accompanying all that does feel like some mystery in the relationships and some maybe unknowability of the people. And it just, to I guess here's an example. To flip from that sort of chatter to then an expansive chapter about his son dying at seven is just, it's just an odd, this book flips back and forth in kind of an odd way, I find. Yeah, that was um so that was one of the things that I was surprised by too is the the spy aspect but specifically like the non-chronological order mm-hmm. of these chapters. Yeah. There's a lot of going back and forth. When I picked it up, I thought that the spy thing was just going to be like a backdrop and that the focus would be on like an immigrant experience. I was almost expecting more of like an Amy Tan kind of mm-hmm. story, yeah. right? Yeah. Um but I I and I'm enjoying this book a lot. Um, I think yeah, that Chang Wei yeah. Li is like an amazing writer. And I, I was expecting more of an immigrant experience. But I, what I really like is that he takes that immigrant experience and instead of focusing on um, like the the day-to-day sort of like this is how it builds up to these big problems, you're in the middle of his big problem, which is his inability to communicate and his inability to express himself and his inability to really grasp who he is as a person because yeah. of these two different worlds essentially within him. Um, 
the American versus the Korean. And I just, I really am enjoying it. And the, the relationships are key to that because his dad, his wife, right? He's got a lot of, um, Jack is also an immigrant who's from was it Greece, I think. Greece? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, but Hoagland's full on American, right? Yeah. His wife, yeah. full on American. Right. And then he's got Kwong, who is also um, an immigrant, uh, a Korean American immigrant. Right. So, like, all these relationships, they have different layers, and the way that he interacts with these people are also different. He's way more comfortable with Jack, who is an immigrant than he is even with his own wife in a lot of ways. Yeah. And the, and the wife chronology is a bit confusing to me at the moment because they're sort of separated, which I'm assuming is going on at the same time as the Kwong narrative. Like I, I I think so. The way I've been reading is that those things are at the same time that she went on her trip to Italy, her Island trip at kind of the same time he was maybe getting embedded with Kwong or a little after that or or a little before that or something. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, the chronology of it is, I guess now this is, I don't want to toss too far ahead, but I think I should have mentioned um, this to you before we started the podcast. Maybe I'll have to cut this part, but you know, we, we tend to leave in the bits that should be cut. We're keeping it all. I think we should do the, (laughs) please continue, make it stop next. We usually do that later. When I was looking at the outline before, I think that should go before the motifs just because the motifs are a little bit more in depth. So this is my long segue to say, let's just do the please continue, make it stop now. Sure. Because I think that it's an odd one, but my please continue is how it explores his background and his history with his family. Those parts have been incredibly intense portraits and almost like little micro stories that I've really loved. I think some of the more potent parts of the book have been about his nostalgia or the kind of horrors and the traumas of his childhood and how those mm-hmm. things are intermingled, how his father raised him and his, his mom. And then the, what is the title of the servant they had? Is Did they call her the Hajima? Is that the term? Ajima. 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 No H. Okay. No H. Okay. And that's just a title of kind of blanket respect or something like that. Or yeah, it's just, um, it's like auntie. Auntie. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. It's like, um, any, any woman who is, uh, it's just a a title of respect for an, an, a non young woman. Gotcha. Okay. Well, the, (laughs) the, that, upbringing has been fascinating but the the way that it's interwoven with the let's just call it the most updated uh, kwong narrative does it's intense kind of whiplashing at times and i think it's managed pretty well but uh, some of it felt underexplored and the transitions that can happen in there do feel kind of intense and abrupt but i I just i want to continue i want him to continue exploring the parts of just being raised growing up in new york i've got a quote pulled from 7071 that i'll briefly Uh, briefly read from here with with his father there's a paragraph where he describes his father as my father grunted back in that low way of his the vibrato from his neck tingling my thighs his voice all raw meat and stones and my mother just answered him come up right now and eat some lunch he marched around the side of the house with me hanging from his back by my ankles and then bounded up the front stairs inside and up to the kitchen table where she had set out bowls of noodles and broth and half moon slices of pink and white fish cake and minced scallions And as we sat down, my mother cracked two eggs into my father's bowl, one into mine, and then took her seat between us at the table before her Spartan plate of last night's rice and kimchi and cold mackerel. She only ate leftovers at lunch. And then we shut our eyes and clasped our hands, my mother's always holding mine extra tight, and I could taste on my face the rich steam of soup and the call of of my hungry father offering up his most patient prayers to his God. And then we go from there. 
there I think those descriptions of his childhood and the relationships, the interplay between them, the mother's, you know, Spartan meal, only eating leftovers, sacrificing the most for the others, the father kind of being a brooding, not maybe not brooding, but kind of brutal, but also at times kind of a delicate figure in the household too, kind of kind, but really harsh with his son. There, there are just paragraphs in there like that, that lay out the family's complex dynamics, I think, really intensely. So I think that's my very long-winded please continue. It's I, I, every time they've gone into a flashback like that, other than the pacing of it, which there have been moments where I just wonder, when are we getting back to the Kwong stuff? Or like, what? Are, how long is this going to go on? I think he is allowed to embellish because it's often so well-written. I agree. I that was also my please continues related to, to that is um, Henry's interpersonal relationships. Yeah, um, I enjoy seeing how he relates to everyone as he tries to tie his past to his present day action. So the the non chronological order of that stuff, where he goes into these amazingly detailed flashbacks, there are a reflection I think of like how he feels in the present. Um, which I find really interesting because we see I don't know if you've noticed, but like the progression of even. Um, Henry's dad's character like in his mind we start off with some pretty like not nice not loving memories of his dad Mm -hmm. but then later we get more of the emotional side the more loving side especially with their son Mitt and even after the death of of Mitt and his memories he does go back to that memory of him as a child riding riding on his dad's shoulders like there's more tenderness and I think, therefore, more understanding in his memories now versus at the very beginning of the novel. And I just think that that is really cleverly done. And so the the jumping back and forth in time, it might be a little like disconcerting at times. But then when I look at the full storyline and like what's also happening in the present in relation to those memories, I think that it's it's just really cleverly done. Yeah, it's sort of loosening him up a bit, I suppose. Yeah. I wonder, how do you feel about, or this is more of a technical plot type question, but uh, the way you just phrased all that has me wondering it now, and I don't have an answer. When do you think Mitt died compared to when the Kwong stuff is happening? Let's again just call that the most current thing. Like, I don't, it's hard to say. I don't, is it, was it years ago? I, and I he think and his, it was years ago because yeah. the way that I understood it is, um, his wife um, is in her like 40s, I want to say, and they had okay. met when they were in their like late 20s, is how I understood it. Okay, okay. And he was seven, so it's been like I want to say at least like a decade from from the way that I'm understanding the narrative thus far. Okay, I just can't tell. He mentions, like, for example, he talks to Kwong about maybe, or Kwong mentions to him, maybe I can get your wife some speech jobs in the city. And then the most recent thing was that she was kind of unemployed. That's when she went to Italy and took her trip. So she's kind of just doing this wandering phase and isn't, which I guess was, that's kind of their relationship has been like that. She has moments where she just kind of has to take her own space and wander about. And so those, yeah, so it felt like, okay, well, those things are around the same time. But then, yeah, when they reference mid, it's almost this, the way the memories are dropped in, it does feel like a sheltered uh, or almost fenced in zone or something. And in the narrative, it kind of feels like that too, where you're being, dropped into something kind of i don't know with its own space but devoid of a relationship to the other space (laughs) to the other things around it or something very segmented off it's 
Yeah, I think your reading though is a good one and very insightful. But it's you got to do some subtle thinking and analysis to get there. I think. Yeah. To notice the yeah. kind of parallel developments, I guess, is what it would be. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy it? Would you continue with the? I know you said generally interpersonal relationships. What about with his family? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I love the. Um, it, it's primarily right about his relationship with his own father, right? Because yes. his father really yes. shaped a lot of his life since his mom passed when pretty fairly early on yeah. in his life. Um, but yeah, I would love to see more of that because <clears throat> the I think father son relationships, just like mother daughter relationships, once they hit a certain age, like there's a lot more strain going on. But I relate to. I think this character, Henry, because like my mom is also Korean. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, there were things like I grew up in America, right? So like there were definitely American ideals and, and things that I had expectations about, especially seeing my friend's parents and how they interacted that I didn't understand why my mom didn't do the same things and why we mm-hmm. had different like, you know, when I was a kid, people would tease me because of like my lunch was completely different from theirs and stuff right, like right. that. So the I I 100% relate to some of that like interpersonal strain from cultural ignorance almost, um, mm-hmm. but yeah I I love the development of that and I love the the movement towards more of like an understanding for his father and more tenderness towards his father I think that it's it's a great progress and it shows how much his father shaped him but also the resentment there and then general like going more towards understanding and acceptance the two turns now that you framed it in that way sort of that the narrative is loosening up on the father a bit the two developments i can think of now that come sort of later into the story are one that he immigrated to the u.s with a master's degree and then like so many immigrants of skilled labor of a skilled labor force have to immediately reinvent themselves and do something you know comparatively country to country economy to economy would be like vastly beneath whatever their attainment was or their, you know, expected amount of income they would be making, the job they would have, the kind of work they'll be doing. That's revealed pretty late. The mother kind of scolds Henry about not acknowledging that or recognizing it. Also, Henry probably didn't know. So it's he's being scolded for something he was never told. But, you know, that's part of the dynamic is there's some silence in that relationship, too. There was that revelation, but then also the one that as soon as the mother passed, the father started coming home really early to kind of Mm -hmm. just be at home with him, even though they didn't interact much. He would just be in the house after school, just kind of to be a, I don't know, an adult figure around probably for, you know, it's comforting to have that around and have a stable presence. And yeah, both of those things are like later on. So, yeah, and even like the the presence of Ajima later, that was for Henry as well, right? He was like, right. you need a female presence in your life. You need somebody who can take care of you. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're moving across town, but or across, uh, to a new city in a bigger house. But this is for right. you. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's yeah. her presence in the story probably demands its own. I don't know, talking yeah. points or something. Maybe in the second book club, will that'll show up in an essay prompt or something. But it's, Ooh, yeah. it is complicated, uh, to be sure. I'll jump in with my make it stop then. Because your please continue was the relationships, right? Which, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's so much to say. We said a good amount. But the make it stop for me then is an odd one because I just complimented it a lot. But it, the pacing of this book can feel a bit stuttery. I think the tone is relatively consistent. The narrator is the sort of, 
he's compromised and sort of reluctant, even in the flashbacks and the memories. Same with the spy narrative, if that's what we want to call it. But it's there have been moments, especially in the flashbacks, where these what I'm going to just call poetic divergences that I enjoy have enjoyed a ton, but they they do put a wrench into a story that's otherwise kind of brisk. It's a very thoughtful thing. And there's a lot of reflection on relationships and dynamics of these things. And it's, it's well-written it's intense. But even these moments, I'm going to read one from 99. That is the most prominent example I could find, but there are these times when he really does kind of write himself into a bit of a spiral, I think might be the metaphor or something. He (laughs) kind of just goes off for a bit and lets it wander. And, um, I don't want these to stop, but they also sometimes don't feel that well incorporated either. They're very poetic and sort of brief. Anyway, from 99, this is when the narrator is reflecting on Mitt dying. And it here, I'm just going to read a couple parts of it. It begins, flesh, the pressure, the rhythms of gasps. This was all we could find in each other. This, this the novel language of our life. Mornings brought sober hope than the usual imperatives. Look for Lelia. She was most often gone before I woke, already off somewhere in the city working with students. Now keep thinking. Think for keeps. Then isolate the wonderments, the curiosities of his death. They will help you to see. Shed sentimentality. Stop this falling in love with fate. Reside, if you can, in the last place of the dead. Maybe this way. A crush. You pale little boys are crushing him, your adoring mob of hands and feet, your necks and heads, your nostrils and knees, your still sweet sweat and teeth and grunts. Too thick anyway to breathe. How pale his face, his chest. Blanket his eyes. Listen now. You can hear the attempt of his breath, that unlost voice calling us from the bottom of the world. And it's really, you know, it's such a vivid and beautiful quote and just really devastating. It's a remembrance of, you know, this tragic, preventable and really unpredictable death. And there's just so much innocence in it lost. And it has, it does have that component, slightly racial component because of how he was treated. And, you know, his son was discriminated against in the neighborhood, but then, you know, of course, as soon as he's welcomed and embraced, literally he is smothered to death by the, you know, by being welcomed and actually having friends. So there's that, but it, it's just so poetic it throws images out there there's these ideas of kind of these pale things being thrown and then it's and then it asks you to kind of take this memory in but then reframe it as kind of a wonderment but then don't be sentimental but then it it certainly is that and you know it's such a rich passage i could probably wander through and keep describing it for another couple minutes but won't it's all to say Moments like that, I feel like, have been injected throughout. Maybe none more intense than that one, though, because of how heightened that moment is. But, again, I don't want them to stop, but there is a certain pacing issue it creates when you go from a passage like that to then, and now I'm, you know, back doing my spy craft, or, you know, I'm embedded in Kwong's, you know, and, and from there, it's just sort of like... He's having relationships, he's trying to get information, he's trying to understand this person, this politician, and what makes him popular. Again, I'm loving it all, but I guess that was the only thing I could come up with, is these sort of, and again, it's all it's all front-handed compliments or some, whatever the phrase would be, because, yeah, reading something like that I found really beautiful and poignant, but then it, it is kind of, you do have to do a lot of the work and put up with those divergences, I guess, my final thought. Yeah, I think... Um kind of like when we were reading um, Murakami where we were like, man, how are these two narratives going to like finally like merge and and make complete sense? I think that in a lot of ways we're going to see maybe in the second half uh, more clearly 
like the reasons for these time jumps and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm interested to see how how he does that. And I'm on board with. I think it's been working for me in terms of, so let's break this down in terms of just simple story elements, shall we? Character-wise, it works beautifully. I have a full sense of Henry's yearning, the way he processes mm-hmm. loss, and, and those moments to me feel like more of a narrative flair by the author than, like, do I get a deeper insight in that moment into Henry than some other passages that are a bit more straightforward? Not really, but it does create a certain mood and a certain like deeply haunted sense of loss of, you know, of his son. So I I enjoy the poetics of it. And I think it's really well realized, but to go from that to some other parts of the story. Yeah. I could see it being a touch jarring again. I'm, I'm on board. And even, I think that the narrative doesn't have to twist the timeline stuff into some deeper thing. I'm very content with the reading you provided, which is it's just sort of, Un- unlatching things as it goes and kind of opening up, becoming a looser interpretation of people that you maybe thought you knew or something. So, yeah. Yeah. And how about for you, make it stop if you could come up with one? Um, the only thing that I could really think of was just, I don't like Hoagland. Um, yeah. Yeah. His boss. Um, I know that he's meant to, like, you know, I know people complain about their bosses. It's just like a thing. But, like, I think Hoagland as a character is just really unpleasant in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. and the way that Henry interacts with him it's like almost uh, it's a weird interaction between them and I'm I'm wondering like what is Hoagland's purpose as a character aside from just being an unlikable boss And, and maybe like later in the latter half we'll see more of like perhaps why is he just there to like push um, Henry into yeah. continuing his work? Is he there to antagonize him in some way? I'm too... I don't know. So I, I'm I'm interested in seeing how, how it's resolved later as far as like why he seems to be like important enough for him to keep coming up as a character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I I'm, right now I'm just not seeing it. So that's like my only real criticism thus far of the novel it's just just the one person (laughs) and i think we could take a few minutes to unpack a couple things because i think structurally he's working though he is the most i don't know he's the most base in the moral sense i think right (laughs) which is pretty clear from the outset so how do you feel about him as sort of a symbolic use of kind of white america as we would call it today, or, you know, privilege or something, or power in that way, in the structural way. The the couple of readings I would give on that are, he, at some point, Henry describes how basically everyone recruited to this agency has done so to connect with a racial demographic, roughly speaking. It doesn't line up perfectly, but it seems mm-hmm. like Hoagland is doing this in this crass, very bottom line way of just saying like, well, you've got to match your demo. You're going to you're going to get me in and you will be the connection point I use. Basically, I'm going to use that part of your identity to produce success and get contacts and have you know, get rich, I don't know, (laughs) like have this business venture, basically. Does that make sense symbolically, do you think? I guess. I just, for like your typical, like the way that like, oh, white empowerment, actually I see that as more of um, uh, Lilia's dad when he interacts um, the flashback to Lilia's dad. He's 100% what would be um, like white privilege for me, 
right? Yes. Um, Hoagland is, I see him as very toxic. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Um, especially like when he talks about like his wife and his relationship with his wife and even his neighbors. Uh, <laughs> it's very, everything is yeah. so toxic with him. And I'm just, why? Like, I guess it could be like the, the idea of like, I, I am better than others and I want what I want and I'm not going to think about the effects of other people. So that kind of maybe American attitude, because he does talk about an American attitude versus Jack at one point, but I don't remember the quote. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I, I'm not trying to be as harsh with that. <laughs> well, it's a great contrast. He and the father, Lilia's father, are the, yes, and they're, it's interesting because Lilia's father does frame it through a racial lens pretty strongly and pretty clearly yeah. he calls their son or their potential son. He, at that point they weren't pregnant, but a, a UNICEF poster, but that that would please him. Now he thought of it as kind of crass before, but now it, he seems like that would give him comfort or something. The yeah. Leland is given the or Leland. I'm conflating names now. Hoagland <laughs> is giving Leland's dad. Leland. No, uh, Hoagland is given pretty close to a screed at one point at, and Henry tells him to fuck off after before I think yeah. he's given the quang job but he I'm not going to read it because it includes some racist language too but essentially he says look my parents were exploited by everybody every different group it's a melting pot of exploitation here there's always people more rich or powerful it's just a total scrap to see who can accumulate the most power and wealth you know if it happens to fall along these racial lines so be it you know i don't care essentially his position is i don't care who's exploiting whom it's a power vacuum you got to grab what you can it's everybody you know fish big fish eat small fish (laughs) everyone's getting eaten that's just the world baby so he yeah he's got kind of a toxic view of the exploitative nature of, I don't know, social grouping, society, power, and, the, and those kinds of things, which I think could be read in maybe not the racial lines as much, though he does use his employees' identities to get what he wants out of them. That's That part mm-hmm. is, like, explicitly said. And so, but I think he could be read maybe, yeah, less in that way, more of just this really crass, I don't know, he's like a Thomas Hobbes uh, <laughs> manifestation or something, this sort of, you know, life is nasty, brutish, and short, and I'm just, we should all just grab what we can while we can and be ready to be taken advantage of. So, I, I, yeah, I feel like he, at, at, in that regard, in that sense, too, I don't know, if you're going to have a boss of spies, that is a type you could have that I think, again, to me in the narrative is working well because if you're going to have someone who is sort of manipulating puppet strings in that way, in that position... Yeah, you have to give him a kind of reason for falling into that line of work and being that way. I guess that's just his way. I'm not sure if that, yeah. I don't know if that reading feels satisfying or thorough to you or anything or any thoughts. Yeah, it, I think that it makes sense. I just, I just hate the idea of like having, I guess, like a, a character that seems to be popping up so often for that to be like a trope rather than Mm -hmm. a real character, especially when we see how the characterization for everybody else, like Jack and Henry and Lelia and his father and even Ajima, they have such like complex kind of like personalities that are developed throughout the story. Even Ajima, who only shows up in a few chapters, right? But then Hoagland, it seems like comparatively he shows up even more but he seems yeah. so like one track. So that's that's really like what's kind of like making me like eh. <laughs> yeah, not you're right. Not a lot of subtleties around him as yet. 
100 percent true i honestly as you were saying that the father lou's father makes sense too because he's in one brief scene but then right. also at this point in the story i'll say it isn't quang kind of that too um also pronunciation check on that one for me if you can jump in it is, is yeah, it Quang? probably yeah, i would say is quang oh quang with the o sound okay gotcha yeah. thank you anyway appreciate it <laughs> um i'm just yeah i always do my best not to butcher things and will continue to do horribly <laughs> but can always improve anyway quang that he is sort of flirting at the edges of this narrative too. I think the last maybe 30 or 40 pages have finally injected a good amount of him. So you're starting to see him maybe more subtly or something, but yeah, both of them feel at this point sort of elevated and they, they don't have the interpersonal touches yet, but Hoagland definitely more so he's, yeah, he's yeah. sort of floating above things in a way. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Okay. Let's move to the motifs. Now I think, this is the order of things because the motifs are usually when we dive deepest. This is the part when we select one motif or any other rhetorical device that we feel like has been used effectively by the author so far. One big thematically connected idea that we think is being developed well and we want to talk about and think about. Amanda, why don't you start us off with your motif so far for the first half? Sure. Um, I chose the very obvious one, I think, <laughs> which is um, silence and language or mm-hmm. even silence versus language um, speaking. So the title itself is pretty clearly about that Um, native speaker, right? So um, a lot of the at least beginning stories between Henry and his father are like silence, right? Mm -hmm. And the only times that they really, you see him, Henry's father talking, he talks more as the stories progress, but there's like some grunting and stuff like that, and just, like, commands if he does talk um, until later. And then right. even, like, with the um, at, uh, the scene with his father with the stroke, there's silence there, too. But then there's also Henry doing the talking at that point. I completely um, forgot about that scene. And it was so yeah. poignant, too. Yeah. 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 And so language there is really important. And also the the use of Korean versus English is pretty telling too. So with the um, um, Korean, it's more of like he is commanding because he feels more comfortable and therefore is more secure, uh, his father anyway, more secure. And so he he does his commands in Korean. But mm-hmm. then when in the Ajima scene, when he's first telling him about the Ajima, he speaks to him in English to try to show that almost like tenderness, like I'm doing this for you. So it's like English, he's not as secure with, and therefore he is like, that's his almost language of love to Henry in a lot of ways, because he's not just demanding, he's trying to Mm. express himself in a foreign language, um, which I found really interesting. And then um, with Henry himself, we find that he also, just like his father in highly emotional situations, um, he's silent too. and so I think that that's, and we see him talking more comfortably with other immigrants than with any of his white counterparts um, or American counterparts. So the the idea of of language is really interesting, and um, he the the idea of the exactness of language too. That's one of the first when he first meets Lelia at that party. She even comments to him, which is why I wasn't sure if um, Henry, I know that he was raised mostly in the United States, but I don't know if he was brought over 
after he was born. Mm-hmm. So maybe technically it's an immigrant story. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, he is, Lilia says like, oh, I noticed that you actually are very careful in the way that you speak, which actually makes you stand out as a non-native speaker. Right. Yeah. Right? Pronunciation's so, too sharp. Exactly. She's like, the way that you say my name, you make sure to pronounce every syllable exactly. So mm-hmm. he is very careful as a speaker, too, which is interesting when you contrast that with his inability to actually voice himself. So it's like a mastery of the language in like a technical sense. But when it comes to an actual language as like an expression, he falls short. Yeah. So there's that that really interesting contrast there um, that, that I found interesting. And the his unwillingness to kind of use language to express himself, I think is um, best described with his, the loft apartment that he and his wife share, where he was talking about how there's this big open space and everything right. is exposed, but he prefers to stay at the edges of the apartment, of the condo. Right, right. The studio apartment there. And so I thought that that was like the perfect um, image of his relationship to language and to his identity. So yeah. anyway, so I, I just think that language is really important here. I was thinking too, is then his, is his most potent maybe personal example of communication then that he is sort of spying on his own wife when she's back in town. And then as, as he, she sort of lightly criticizes him for he, they had an agreement to meet up at some point, but he just showed up before that anyway, sort of unannounced. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, I mean, it, you know, he reflects on his own actions plenty of times and kind of comes to the conclusion that he tends to hide things or, you know, he tends to bury things, does, doesn't show perhaps all of what's going on or he kind of, when, when things, when there's a conflict, maybe interpersonal one, he sort of retreats is his way. I guess maybe mm-hmm. the showing up is the communication that I don't, who do you think he communicates best with in the story then so far? Other than the other than the Filipino therapist, which we've not talked about at all, but that right, almost yeah, unraveled really his telling. yeah unraveled his whole career, <laughs> and sort yeah. of you know that the tenderness that that man showed him caused him to fail you know his corporate spy job on that guy who then apparently was later killed. That's when it's again there is some heightened spy stuff here, and that's another talk about like a tete a tete that he has with Hoagland where there's just a lot of implication. That's another mm-hmm. moment where I was like, oh, this is again it's dealing in spy tropes, right? Like that guy. Yeah. You know, who knows what went wrong or who betrayed whom, but that person's dead. And, oh, who knows who's responsible for it? Some people just die. And so, I don't know. It just feels very spy thrillery in those moments, too. Anyway, back mm-hmm. to the question. Sorry. Yeah. Who do you think he's communicating best with? I think um, probably Jack. Yeah, you would. Yeah, you'd think so. Because Jack knows a lot of his. Um, he knows about Lelia, right? Everybody at work knows about Lelia, but. um Jack is the one who gives him advice and right, yes. Henry um, is able to express like this is what I'm worried about and is seeking advice from Jack. Um, but yeah, I think that he's the best one and and it's interesting too his relationship with Kwong so far. There's not a whole lot of actual discussion, right? But the looks that they share and the the mutual understanding without having to speak, I think is is really interesting mm-hmm. too. So it's. I think um, 
just like a, a, a general just understanding each other without having to speak Kwong, but then like actual like closeness would be Jack. Yeah, the have he and Kwong sustained a they've been chatting and I think he mentions that they exchange words in Korean sometimes at their office, but have they mm-hmm. sustained a conversation yet in the story? I don't think they have. They haven't, not not that I not I directly. Anyway. Yeah, so I'm I'm waiting for the way the narrative is withholding that does feel really dramatic, especially since there's interspersed throughout. It's clear that the narrator of this, whenever Henry's narrating it from, it's post Kwong. Like he's narrating this from some point in the future where he says, "I don't even know anything about that man anymore. I don't know where he is right. or what he's up to or what happened to him." So it's clear yeah. that they're heading for some dramatic, you know, conclusion or climax or whatever. But yeah, it's really teasing that. I, whenever the first time they really have a sustained interaction <laughs> will be is going to be. Hopefully, it will pay that off. I don't know what that will be though. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's building up to it. I'm yeah. going to jump in with my motif then because it relates to Kwong strongly. It's funny, you said, as you said, yours relates to the title. It's a really obvious one. I really thought mine was the most obvious. I feared that as I thought it up and was trying to lay out what I would talk about, that you would have taken it too because I thought it was almost too obvious. So <laughs> I'm glad we did. <laughs> I thought you were going to take mine. That's why I wrote yeah. mine up Well, this is, this is the yin and the yang of the podcast, right? We got to get such a balance. We <laughs> balance each other out perfectly. Uh, minus fathers. I, it seems like such a run. It, it, granted, there's so many interpersonal connections. You've run through those well. But considering that both the narrator is himself a now, what do you call a father whose child is by? I was going to say widower. That's not at all the connection or the relationship. But whatever. He is bereaved a, a father who's lost a son. But then also so much of the narrative is dominated by his relationship to his dad since his mother passes at a young age. So... I think that's the motif that I hit upon. There's so many things to say about it. I guess we have to open with Henry's own father, since the book kind of does too. It immediately makes it clear that he's going to have a lot of thoughts about his relationship for his father. The description here, he says, My father, on page six, a Confucian of a high order, would commend me for finally honoring that which is wholly evident. For him, all of life was a rigid matter of family. I know all about that fine and terrible ordering, how it variously casts you as the golden child, the slave son or daughter, the venerable father, the long-dead god. But I know, too, of the basic comfort in this familial precision, where the relation abides no argument, no questions or quarrels. The truth, finally, is who can tell it. And so, you know, he's born into a pretty rigid understanding, then, of family, fealty, and dedication, that kind of a thing. His father comes across as a pretty rugged man with a lot of failings. And he, you know, someone who kind of taunts and berates Henry throughout the, the narrative, the two moments of that that stood out to me as sort of oddly personal was one, at some point he makes fun of Henry's hair and maybe Henry doesn't have enough hair or his hair isn't as vigorous as his father who puts a lot of product in his hair. But then there's also on page 67, he taunts Henry about how he's unattractive, how the, the girl going to the dance with him in high school, I think it was, couldn't possibly be attracted to him and is just using him for his money or his status or something or as kind of an object of maybe that's a moment of kind of exoticizing Henry or something but Mm -hmm. and so yeah his father is sort of this intense figure but as we already laid out and I think you made the case for it does unravel his more delicate and personal side and he really becomes kinder when Mitt is around I feel like they have a strong connection he you know enjoys Leela's presence and so becomes maybe less of a menacing figure I didn't even think about the scene when he's hospitalized and can't speak I should have gone back to that and reread it to see what details were worth picking up there but 
yeah, so there's, I mean, his father's kind of this dominant figure who instills a lot of that, I don't know, maybe silence in him or something. But then yeah. Henry's a grieving father, so that is a dominant part of the narrative, too. That is something I want way more of. I already read from the really tender scene when Mid had just died, and he's reflecting on the kind of void in the life that it created, really brutal scene. But I, Henry's own fatherhood is maybe the most silent part of the fathers in the story. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that the... It's it's tough. Like the the relationship between them change when Mitt is around. We see a lot more of the tenderness, but I think that's also just in general because Mitt is not fully Korean either, so right, he doesn't right. have as much of that, um, like idea. I think Henry's father doesn't have the the need necessarily to instill that cultural mm-hmm. aspect as much because right. he is second generation American and he's only half Korean. Yeah. So maybe he is a little bit more, I don't know, lax with him or something a little more detached, but in a way that comes off as kind of almost kindness detachment is sort of, he's not as involved and therefore not as intense or brutal with him. But yeah, I think it's Henry's own fatherhood. That is the thing that I'm still wondering about the most. He care He listens to those tapes. So, you know, he's very sentimental and for, I mean, he's mourning still. So there, you know, is, plenty of reason for that but yeah his own kind of role as a father there are just not that many scenes with them as yet he they kind of lay together in their summer bed at one point he's like stroking his arm and it's you know he, he seems caring but that's the relationship i think i have the clearest or sorry the, the murkiest reading on so far um the only other two father figures i'll mention just briefly though would be jack i think he you know he's a friend mentor but he could be read as a father type figure too because he's more experienced he's kind of a bit more respectable in the company he's almost you know going to retire there's also a point when he gives him some some wisdom i couldn't find the page for this maybe you'll remember the quote or the page or something but at some point he jack is giving him advice about kind of how to manage his relationship with his wife and so and again it relates to his recently departed wife and how you have to kind of be you have to live with a certain amount of vigor and presence in in the world so he kind of is an advice giving figure do you read jack as a father figure or just a friend I, I see him as um, as kind of like an older brother oh, okay. in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. So just slightly in the hierarchy, just slightly above um, Henry in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that Henry sees him as necessarily a, a father yeah. himself. I right. think that actually Kwong is going to fill that yes. for him. Yep. So that's then the final perfect way to end it for me anyway. Kwong is the final one that I wanted to bring up literal father because he has children and a wife in the story but also he's he's this benevolent political figure who's so beloved and so connected to the neighborhood and the immigrants there and the whole story and the energy of i think it's a part of queens right that the he's a part of that he represents and so he inspires that kind of devotion that i think you know some fathers and sons can have that relationship where it's almost a type of emulation or worshiping or something a quick quote from 128 it says, this, and this is about Kwong, this proved to, what appeared to me to be his great talent, his seeming resistance to dilution. This, despite the fact that everyone he met, each one of us he encountered inside and outside his office and circle, 
even and perhaps especially strangers, the curious citizenry of the streets, Kwong made feel as though he were bequeathing a significant part of himself, and I thought that no matter what skin you were, no matter what your opinion of him, when you met him in person you somehow felt that you understood the subtle pressure of his grip that it said or meant that you were his, his faintest brother to him, perhaps distantly removed by circumstance or blood, but a brother nonetheless. And then there are some other passages in there too where he inspires that sort of interpersonal devotion connection he you know he brings you in makes you feel a warmth there is a part though where he says he thinks that kwang is detached in a way that makes it clear to these strangers that you know or even to his volunteers and employees that you know you're not we're not fully there i'm not fully going to be your father figure but i am going to inspire a deep connection so it's quite complicated i don't yeah i don't know how to read kwang yet any thoughts on him as a father figure yeah, I think that he's um, he's everything that Henry's actual father is not. Henry's mm-hmm. father, um, like, took him out of the city, took him away from that sense of community in a lot of ways, right? They, right, they right. moved to the suburbs, and they moved further and further away, and we don't actually see... Henry later in college does have a, a friend who's Korean, which um, he goes to visit later, but um, okay. in, like, the... I don't remember the particular scene, but he goes and he sees his friend's parents and they're Korean and he's like hit with that nostalgia. Oh yeah. But, but there's no, um, no, like he's surrounded by Americans, right? So as soon as his father makes enough money, he drops his Korean connections. He's no longer in that Korean club where they do the money thing and they, they move. Whereas Kwong is actually like developing that sense of community and encouraging that community. And so I think that in a lot of ways, he's kind of the opposite of Henry's father. And he gets to see perhaps what his father could have been like in a different life, perhaps. Yeah. So I think that's, yeah. that's kind of what it's going to be for him. And his father sort of is, a, it's a tragic tale of abandonment because he has those connections in, in the city, in the community. They play, there's those days where he plays sports and they sort of have that club and he's, you know, he's commingling with, with friends and probably other Korean immigrants and stuff. And then, yeah, they have the, the financial agreement club, which then he eventually, because he becomes successful and has a couple businesses that he eventually doesn't need, kind of disappears from or drops out of so he doesn't have Mm -hmm. that communal connection anymore and so yeah it's sort of he did become a bit more detached maybe in his own way then perhaps more american a little more calculating a little less communal a little more individual about him and his family and their own success and just concerned about you know like you said it's a suburban he fled the city moved to the suburbs wants to build up his own plot and you know protect his own in a way and so yeah it is a it'll be a fascinating contrast again i think kwang is still I mean, obviously, he's clearly the great mystery at the heart of this book anyway, explicitly so in terms of the plot. Mm-hmm. But I still, yeah, I don't think I have a clean reading on him as a father figure yet either, because as much as he inspires those, I don't know, those devotees and he inspires people to love, just love him personally, it's also clear that he maintains a bit of political, you know, he's got that political coldness about him, maybe that he is calculating yeah. something. And so... Yeah, I'm curious to see where that goes. It's, I don't know, story of fathers to me. 
Yep, I, I can see that for sure. Yeah. And it's like, that's the thing that's also, I think, the, the most interesting for me as well. Yeah, excellent. Let's end then, because we kind of have been doing this throughout, in, sprinkling these in um, occasionally. Let's end, as we always do with part one, with a big, bold prediction for the second half of the book. I have done another clean reading, so I truly have not read a page past halfway. I don't know if you've gone on, but... Yeah, I'm. I've read one chapter past. Fair enough. So okay, we'll we'll not the, not let that infect our our predictions and our readings. Of course, why don't you begin with your prediction then for the second half of Native Speaker? Go ahead. Sure, my prediction does deal with father figures, specifically John Kwong. Yeah, just because he's yeah. the big mystery, as you mentioned. Um, so I think that he is going to solidify as a father figure for Henry. Um, and then I think what's going to happen because it's been so cryptic. Um, Henry's been kind of cryptic about John Kwong. I mm -hmm. think that he's going to be forced to choose between betraying Kwong or losing his job, which I think is going to be where we see more of the development of Hoagland as almost like a villain figure yeah, to, yeah. to Kwong. Or not to Kwong, sorry, to Henry. Mm -hmm. So I And I think that he's going to choose to betray Kwong, but then it's going to force him to... Um, leave his job in the end and also to reevaluate his own priorities and himself as like kind of choosing who he's going to be for his identity because it, that identity struggle between being American versus Korean I think that's going to kind of highlight that struggle for him and he's going to finally come to terms with who he is as a person. Yeah, I wonder if then Kwong and Hoagland will sort of line up as symbolic or thematic opposites in a way. I wouldn't yeah. say they're quite there yet, though Hoagland is, he, as I said, he had that kind of screed in there about his it's all about power and taking, you know, that whole thing, so. Right. Anyway, yeah, that's a fascinating prediction. Mine is also about Kwong, though, because we know a couple of things for sure. Henry's narrating this from the future. He describes at some point that he peeled many masks off of Kwong until he finally got to the part that wouldn't peel away, that he felt like was some true version of him. The only other thing I can think of, too, as a moment of kind of subtlety observation was that he sees Kwong berating his wife in his car one day and doesn't know oh, what yeah. it's about, but is he's clearly like shouting her down. So I don't know. It's going to be something. I agree. I think it's going to be some final mask of Kwong will be something about his personal life. Maybe that his marriage is a sham or that his kids aren't even real or his. Like, we know he's supposed to have a family, but we don't really meet them or anything. I, maybe the kids aren't real would be a little extreme, but something about his, his personal family aspect isn't holding up. Maybe he has various affairs or something. I mean, it, Henry's keeping a secret about the mayor's affairs currently, so there's that too. And But I think it would be that there's going to be some moment of disillusionment for Henry that Kwong is not as personally viable or friendly or something as he seemed, or maybe as upstanding a leader as he believed. And I, mm -hmm. I think he's already becoming quite attached to him. It's clear, you know, he's had reflections as we've already read about that. He it views him as this very inspiring leader and sort of a personal, I don't know, almost a heroic type figure in his traits. And so I just, I think it's going to be something about Kwong's personal life. I don't think it's going to be a political failing, and I don't think it's going to, he's not going to discover something about his political machinery that's wrong or that it's corrupt or, I, that part I don't see. I think it's going to be something about his family and maybe Kwong's, yeah, attachments to his identity or his, you know, the way that shows up there. I, I think that's going to be the final thing that is a disillusionment. I, I didn't think about how it would relate to his work, but I think your prediction is really good too. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you on your prediction as well. I think that 
the thing that uh, Henry's going to have to betray him on is going to be something that's very personal to Kuang. Yeah. And not yeah. to deal with the, po- the political persona necessarily. Yeah, it could. I, it certainly could be. I, something about the family element of it is, and it's such a story of families too, of course, that, yeah. yeah, that scene with the wife stuck with me too, just because it showed not only that his temperament might not be steely and perfect, but also that there might be some kind of discontent there or something you know looming that he doesn't let on about so Mm -hmm. yeah that that was my predictions based on that i think okay any final thoughts on the first half of native speaker um just i'm really enjoying this and actually this is um chung ray lee's first novel yeah we've and it's so funny coming off the the bluest eye which was tony morrison's first novel and it's just two completely different reads but just also two very um fun and uh, just deep reads in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm really loving I it. I think you can see in both of these, I was I was going to interject by saying like, we've clearly found a type. We want the first, we want the more experimental <laughs> yeah. first thing a person published, a famous author published. I think that's our vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Give us the, the more, you know, the more trying version of their work or something. Mm-hmm. What I was going to say yeah. is that I think in both of these, you can see the seams of their greatness, quote, however you want to put that, their literary accomplishment or greatness or something, in a way that I find satisfying. Like the passage I read earlier about his son's death, it it, it does feel like the person's extending, the author's really pushing the kind of narrative experience, the poetic nature of some of this stuff. But yeah. I don't know. That's the stuff that I enjoy as long as it's done well. I think in Bluest Eye, it was, you know, Masterclass or something. This is yeah. also pretty excellent, though. The spy stuff is just, it's really put a wrench in my reading of this. It's completely what I did not expect. So yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's been a fascinating read, though. Very fun. I almost never read spy stuff. This is probably, I guess, the tonal and kind of plot version of it I would want. It's it's no action. It's just sort of deception identity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So no, I yeah, wholly recommend it. If you somehow finished this and hadn't read it yet, then yeah, go find a copy. I got a used one at a bookstore for $2, so I can't imagine nice. a $2 better spent <laughs> than this one. So anyway, we have been, as always, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We are on Instagram and Facebook. Follow us there. We do have books coming up in order. I'm going to read off what they are just to give you a sense of what we have if you want to get ahead of the reading or check out future episodes. The next three books in order are going to be Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabriel Hamilton, Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Tay Yamashita, which I think is a, is that a short story collection. It is. Okay, Blood, Bones, and Butter is a food memoir. Then that, that Sansei and Sensibility is a short story collection. And then Devil in the White City by Eric Larson is after that. And that is a historical narrative, um, but, but it's nonfiction. So that one yep. is a kind of a research narrative. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we appreciate it. We'll be back next Friday with part two of Native Speaker. And as always, we will see you between the pages.